one of the happiest places for me to be is a writer's conference where it's just the air is filled with language of search and pain and <laughs> melancholy and but the language itself is quite beautiful and there's just this really uh very full uh you know quality that life is being lived in a in a really raw way um and uh i, I just i feel like uh i can rest there So there's this ideal about the soul creator, you know, that person who goes into their creative cave, kind of cloistered in solitude for days or months or even years, only to emerge with a work of, of genius exploding into the zeitgeist and kind of changing everything. But what if that was all just a myth? Um, you know, what if the whole idea of the soul genius was really this fantasy, obscuring the truth that almost nothing truly profound was ever created in a vacuum? Well, that's what we're talking about on today's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So before we move into today's conversation, you may have noticed that we've been editing the show a bit differently, kind of exploring where we want to go with it and and what kind of vibe we want to create as we turn all of our media energies towards the audio experience. And the truth is, these conversations aren't recorded in a studio. They happen in my living room table, often over a cup of coffee, a glass of water, maybe a little something to nosh. Being in the heart of the city, we're also blessed with all sorts of ambient sounds from sirens to garbage trucks and airplanes to air conditioners. And over the last few months, we've been working like crazy to scrub as much of this out of the audio, you know, to kind of make it as clean and pristine as possible, to sanitize it. And then something happened. In a conversation recorded last week, I was sharing this whole process with my guest. And she said to me, why on earth would you do that? I love that you can hear those things. It's what makes it real to me. Like, like I'm here in the room with you. You know those moments when you're so close to a project, you can't see something stunningly obvious to others? Yeah, that. The moment she said it, it hit me viscerally. I mean, the very thing we'd been working so hard in post-production to try and strip out in the name of being more, quote, professional, was actually a part of our truth, part of what makes these conversations so real. My choice to invite people over for coffee instead of record in a studio, it's deliberate, because we all know that where you are, it changes the conversation. You do it in a studio, you've got no noise, it's silence, but there's also something stiffer about that setting, and while... Most higher-profile people are used to this. Your average person, not so much. It affects you. It makes you clam up just a bit more, kind of like you're you know, in a fish tank and everyone's listening and watching. Well, that's part of the reason we moved away from video, and I wanted to create a physical and sonic environment that changes the way people respond, something that lets you just relax, lets people be more themselves, realer, less filtered. Which is why, despite having access to amazing studios all over Manhattan, at least for now, I've decided to keep recording in a place that creates that safer, just more laid-back container for the stories and the conversations we share. A gloriously real, sometimes noisy, sometimes siren-swept, water-pouring, sandwich-noshing, sonic landscape that plays host to the words that come out. And starting with this episode, I've decided to keep all of that in. Because... To strip it from the conversation, in my mind, is kind of to take away part of that conversation, part of the container, part of the context. 
So as you listen into today's episode, and very likely future episodes, we'll see how this experiment goes, you'll notice something a bit different. We've left it all in because it was there when the conversation happened. It was part of it. And to hold it back would be to hold back a piece of the fuller conversation. Now, some of you may hate that. I'm hoping most of you get it and love it. Either way, it's about a commitment to keeping it not only polished, but real. Because life is real. Life is noisy. Life is alive with energy coming from all directions. And that's what we're here to explore. So onward then to this week's episode. My guest today is best-selling author and essayist Joshua Wolfshank. So he recently published a really provocative new book called The Power of Two, and it explores both the myth of the solo creative and that complex and often legendary power that comes from creative partnerships. Along the way, we'll also dive into Shank's own creative process, what it's like to live that writer's life and spend nearly five years working on a single piece of work. The things I work on take months at least, you know, usually years. Even the magazine pieces I've, I've published have been, you know, often a year of my life. And uh, I'm only going to be sustained if I'm, I really want to know. Mm. Um, that was definitely the case with Lincoln's Melancholy. It's an ongoing theme in my life about the way that, you know, suffering and dejection and, um, you know, is, is, is wrapped up in what's most meaningful and valuable in life. And it was, it was definitely the case here. And it continues to be the case. I mean, I, creativity is fundamentally elusive and we should just say at the outset, I say in the outset of the book, in the book that we're not going to, you know, turn this into a formula. You're not going to ever, you know, get love in a bottle. Hmm. Um, but maybe we can, um, organize our understanding of it in a way that, you know, helps us do better at it. And and that's underneath this all for me is, is wanting to do better, wanting, wanting to be more connected, wanting to be, you know, more myself by, by, um, you know, by the path of, uh, connecting more with other people. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so interesting. Are, are you the type of writer where, um, I've heard it said from different writers, you know, I, I, who's a famous writer who said it's blank on who it was. You know, I, I never know what I think about a thing until I see what I've written about it. Mm. Um, is that part of your thinking process or is that you do? You, Cause it's interesting when I'm working on something very often, a lot of it happens inside of my head. And by the time I'm actually ready to write, a lot of it is kind of, it flows really quickly. The, the actual like out of my head and onto a keyboard part is really fast for me. Mm. But I know most people that are friends with who are writers or authors who write things of substantial length, it's the exact opposite. I'm always curious about that process for people. Mm. I have had the experience of learning what I think by writing. Um, a book like this, um, it's a little different. There's a lot of talking involved. Um, I spent a, you know hundreds of hours on the phone with yeah. my editor. Um, there's a lot of... Um, getting stuff down and it's not quite right and going back over it and going back over it and going back over it. It's, it's more like uh, the chiseling of a, of a sculptor. Mm. You know, you start with this big block and you just try to get it down to some kind of shape or form that, you know, is kind of underneath it all the while. Um, and, and, and many drafts. So it's not, it's not a fluid process at all. I mean, there are very few 
sentences in the book that um, you know came out of my mind onto the page and 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 lasted that way. They're mostly, um, you know, uh, yeah. It's 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 usually much more harder harder fought in part because I'm drawing in so much material. I'm drawing in disparate stories. I'm drawing in social science. I'm trying to leaven both with my own, you know, kind of human sense of what's real and important. Um, and, and the storytelling was totally bedeviling too. how, how you not only bring all these things together at any one moment, but try to create a sustained narrative over time, which was as a writer, you know, one of my basic ambitions was to create an experience for the reader of moving through something, uh, because that's how we, that's how we experience life is through stories. Yeah, I, I, it's so interesting. Also, the you know the um, the metaphor you used of sort of chipping away, and you know, like Michelangelo said about the David. You know, yeah, like it was just in there. I right. had to pull away the stuff that was around it, which it, which also raises my curiosity. But well, how do you know it's done? <laughs> like with that type of process, like do you yeah. just hit a point where you're like, man, we can't keep working on this, or do you hit a point where you're like, yeah, that's it. Mm. When I go over something, you know, the second, the third, the fourth time, and I, I can't see, you know, um, I'm not cringing. I'm not just like uh, it doesn't it it doesn't kill me to read it, uh, you know. Um, then I'm on <laughs> my way to having a, a draft that I can show someone else, and then I see, you know, what they say. I I've done a lot of teaching, and I I I love you know advising people on the creative life and one of the things I say over and over again is that the real test for a creative life is the capacity to endure humiliation mm. because you you have to you know criticize things in your own head over and over again until you get to the place where that critical voice is is kind of beaten back by the quality of what you've done and then you and then you show it to someone else and it usually starts all over again because mm. they see things that right. problems that you don't see and um, um, and then you know uh, and and that happened between me and my editor over and over again and then in the end it's done um, because I'm out of time. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's a moment it. when you know I've spent five years on this book and um, you know another um, you know another six months or year was just not available to me either because of the. Um, you know, because of the the needs of my publisher, and also the need to get this story into the culture at this moment, where yeah. there's something happening around our relationship to uh, kind of, um, the the social foundations of experience, the social foundations of creativity. It's it's definitely it's bubbling up, and you know, a couple of years from now, this this would not be it would not have the kind of impact that it would have right now because. Um, Lots of people are working on this story in a variety of ways. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, you see creativity, innovation, ideation being approached from so many different angles right now. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, when you're sharing a process, it was reminded, um, I heard Neil Strauss talking about when he writes something. He goes, he does four manuscripts. The first one is just, you know, like the rough one. Like, the, is it, does it pass the cringe test? Right. You know, the, the second one is basically for fact-checking. The third one is for really punching up the voice and getting like mm. really good, but the fourth one is for his critics, mm. 
where like he sweeps it and he just tries to identify any potential argument against everything that he said. Mm. And he said, you know, he won't back down from something just because it's a fight or he disagrees, but he'll try and anticipate like, you know, what's the rebuttal here? And yes. can I sort of pre-address it in the book? And which is, which is interesting because when, you know, you've got a book which is really fascinating. It's also provocative for, for some people. Um, so like when you came out where there was a piece, uh, I guess it was an excerpt in uh, The Atlantic and um, sharing part of the book. And it was interesting because then in the comment section, you know, there was like a hundred something comments right. with this raging battle going on in the comments. At one, and pretty soon it's, it's almost not even about like what you were writing. People are just getting really, you know, like pissy with each other. Yeah. But it's an interesting dynamic, you know, like spending so much energy coming out with something and knowing you're going to put it into the world. And you always knew that some people were going to love it. Some people were going to just not get it. And some people were going to hate it. But now it's just when you launch a book into this like sort of digital ecosystem where everybody has strong voices, it's an interesting thing just as a as somebody who creates stuff to put out into the world, you know, yeah. like how that affects you during the process. Yeah. Well, anticipating criticism is is totally fundamental to what I do. One of my early mentors, Charlie Peters, who created the Washington Monthly, used to say, play Notre Dame. Mm. You know, you don't you don't go play a weak team. You go play Notre Dame when you're thinking, when you're reporting, when you're working with your editor. You anticipate the you know the, the hardest charge that someone could come back nah. at you with, and and you you work that into your argument. Um, and um, it's one of the reasons why you know self-critical people are often excellent uh, excellent creators, and it's one reason why in, within creative partnerships there's often so much kind of um uh i'm i'm sitting here at your beautiful <laughs> table uh thrusting my fists against each other this movement of coming at each other you know watson and crick would just try to demolish each other's ideas it was like mm. um you know this really fierce criticism of each other um trying to knock it down and, and simultaneously you know very aggressive but joyful because they 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 are in this process where you know if an idea is left standing then it's then that becomes a seed Man. to move on and if, if either one of them can knock it down then it's got to be it's got to be swept away with the rubble and they've got they've got to start over yeah um so let's kind of dive into the whole exploration of the book also um you know it's called powers of two and um, I guess the, the starting premise is really that um, it's around this concept of the myth of the lone genius, the lone creator. So t tell me a little bit about what this is and where does it come from? Yeah. So I, I told you about my interest in chemistry. That was the foundation. And I thought, you know, if, if I look at creative pairs like Lennon, McCartney, Watson and Crick, I could maybe get to it. And I, I had the instinct that from the beginning that I would need to look at a lot of partnerships um, because I, I wanted to try to get to the essence of the experience and the convergence. And pretty quickly, you know, within the first few days, I was making these lists and beginning my research. And I thought, what about Vincent Van Gogh and his brother Theo? So I, I knew enough about Van Gogh to know that Theo was a supporter. That's the word you see over and over again. If you, you know, look at the, uh, the MoMA website, or you go to a museum show, um, he financially supported his brother, and virtually every every word that you see attributed to Vincent Van Gogh is in a letter to his brother Theo. Hmm. Well, what was the deal with that relationship? And then I remembered 
that in the in Martin Luther King's last speech, best known for you know I've been to the mountaintop. Right. He begins that speech saying, thanking his uh, his this guy Ralph Abernathy, who says uh, he describes as his best friend in the whole world. Hmm. I thought, well, that is interesting. What was the you know is there something there? And um, um, then I started reading uh, you know about those a couple examples. And over and over again, I started to have the experience of these people that I associate, you know, I think of as these, you know, iconic lone geniuses, Sigmund Freud, Emily Dickinson, um, Albert Einstein, Mahatma Gandhi, that there's some critical relationship that is behind the scenes. And that became, the project took on a much bigger, uh, you know, um, cast at that point because it wasn't just about chemistry as this you know pe- peculiar phenomenon but about the experience of chemistry and partnership as it underlies all creative uh all creative experience um which which is the claim of the book and i want i'm going to anticipate the next question and the next and the and the criticism which is to say well what about solitude what about the writer you know in his cave and what about the fact that you know the stand-up comic is on stage alone; those things are true because, but collaboration and creative exchange is not just two people sitting in a room doing the same thing. There's a lot of role taking and distinctions within a partnership. There's a lot of distance within a partnership, um, and looking at all the varieties of the way this manifests help helps you see how pervasive it is and helps helps lay out the series of choices that we have as creative people about how to make these relationships work for our process and our lives. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when I think about it and um, the context of all these publicly known people, you know, cause then you're looking at, okay, we've got the people who are labeled as pairs and the other tons of examples that you share. Yeah. And then the, you know, the not so obvious person behind the scenes, which very often actually is playing an equal, if not greater role, but yes. it's just not out there. Um, and then it's funny, like as you're talking, I'm also thinking about my own creative process and my own background. You know, there were times where I was a painter or I was a writer, but also as an entrepreneur, so, you know, through a number of companies. And um, what I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about my relationships and what, you know, how those have unfolded, because I've had partnerships a number of times. And um, it's interesting sort of thinking through your process and the things that you extracted, like these are the important, like these are the big sort of defining elements and kind of reflecting on my experience in partnership to try and figure out how, you know, what was there, what wasn't there and, yeah. and how did this contribute to something either really doing exceptionally well or just completely imploding on itself. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because that, that is the way I want people to read the book. And uh, it's important to say that we're, you know, we're talking about these um, unreachably great nah. people. I mean, you know, very few of us are going to do anything like the Beatles, you know, very few business people are going to do anything like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you know, make, you know, you know, scores of billions of dollars. Um, but this is, um, an everyday experience and, um, and it's, uh, a part of our, you know, part of all of our lives and, and all of us, you know, I think have this potential. I end the book with this image that, you know, any ordinary street crossing can become our Abbey road. I mean, that's all it was. It's just the, 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 you know the 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 hatched crosswalk uh outside their studio and um and they're 
that's it's all in front of us it's you know it, very often it's a matter of becoming aware of something that's already operating nah. and very often it's a matter of saying wow you know i i need i need more i need to do better i've become very aware as i'm you know doing this research that i'm i am really really good at 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 some things at seeing broad themes at uh uh kind of getting a sense of story and I love informing that with tremendous amounts of research and I'm totally hopeless when it comes to organizing all the mm. things that I take in I mean I I'm constantly losing stuff and you know trying to find things like for the fifth or tenth or fiftieth time and there's some people who are really good at that yeah, and right. I'm now preoccupied about coming into relationship with those people right. at, at any level and I, if I were to do another book like this, I, the first thing I would look for is some kind of producer, researcher, like yeah. librarian type who would create a logistical infrastructure to organize all this stuff and, and to put it in its proper boxes. If you were to open my closets, you would see shit everywhere. <laughs> Just flow, you know, it's like going to fall over and hit you. There's some people, you open their closets. It's meticulous, yeah. And... and and those kinds of people do well together because the people who have the really neat closets, they're some, often a little too tight. You know, mm-hmm. they're a little bit too, they're fixated on structure and form. And a lot of creativity is like shoving your elbows up against the wall until, until you know, the wall cracks yeah. and the room gets bigger. Um, and, the, the, you know, the guy, I t- call this the liquid container dialectic in the book, you know, the, the guy who's associative and you know, free flowing. That's that's my my uh, natural mo. Needs to be organized. Needs to be contained. Needs to be brought into a form. It's like we can only take medicine into our body if it's in the capsule mm. that we can swallow. The capsule is irrelevant. It's going to get dissolved into in, in, and it's going to go into our blood. But you can't take those you know thousand little white dots in a you know Tylenol capsule yeah. and. And, and swallow them one by one. Yeah, and and I think also I totally agree with that, and it, it's been my experience too that you know if you have those two people, you know that you've got the the big idea, the like s- storytelling, the just pulling all these stuff, and and then you have the person. Very often, like your ability to um, make that next big aha is almost dependent on having that other person's ability to organize it in, in a fashion where that, like, you can see it methodologically enough or sort of, like, you can see, you can, it becomes clear, just organized enough so that it becomes the the leaping off point. It becomes a pattern recognition, you know, like, desktop for you to then take that, then you launch into that next phase That's for right. yourself. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's a certain point you don't know you know where things come from there's cause and effect you know which leads to the next cause the next the next effect and very commonly you hear from pairs you know uh you know we don't know who came up with what exactly i mean you could yeah you you sometimes have to find a starting point for a story just because you know stories need a beginning i have this beginning point for my story that i told you a few minutes ago that i became preoccupied with this question of chemistry what preceded that was a conversation with my book editor some months before after like the 16th idea i had pitched him over mm. some years he said you know you keep bringing me topics why don't you think about a question that would 
fascinate you so much that you could spend years of your life huh. doing it. And I that was ringing in my head when I had one of these experiences of chemistry. And I was like, that uh, that's one of these questions. Um, and um, so th- that interlocking process is... Um, is, is really crucial. Yeah. So for you, your, your editor plays at least, well, it sounds like there's still a role that, that he or she doesn't play. You know, they play a certain production and organization role, but it sounds like you still have like the one other piece of the, the research organizer or spreadsheet or. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah, no, no one person can be your everything. And, um, looking at dyads, it's not like, um, this, um, you know, Dyads exist in a context, and often there are multiple dyads in any, you know, creative operation. Uh, I did have someone who helped me with research. I, I also have a literary agent. Um, most writers do, um, you know. She was came in at certain points in the process. Um, I had you know various friends who would read the manuscript at, at different times. I have a writers group. Um, I have colleagues that I share an office with. And there, so there are a variety of relationships operating. And actually, part of what you, I think, have to learn in a, in a, in a seminal relationship is what you do bring to this person and, and what you either have to do on your own or, or what you, you know, need to turn to other people for support with. There came a point with this book where I was missing deadlines and I was preoccupied with something I wasn't getting from Eamon. And uh, it was gnarly uh, on both sides I mean both of us were uh, driven you know to our, our very edge emotionally and um, he, uh, I provoked him and he lashed out at me and this is in the book a little bit and uh, it was um, it, it, very unpleasant but I, I was like okay well now I know I, I you know what the, the, the friendly conversations with him are done for now. I need to deliver this manuscript that's basically ready for copy editing. That's a point in a publishing process when some other editor takes right. it. And, um, and, and until then, there's not much more he can do for me. McCartney, you know, it was was the first, um, I had a picture of them in my head when I was within moments of having this idea, Uh, but then I didn't um, immediately turn to researching them because I thought, those guys have been done, done, done. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it kept coming up, and the little bits I knew about them just really lit up with these themes that were uh, emerging um, as, you know, the resonance among the, the many pairs I was studying. And I read a book uh, by Hunter Davies, who had a very unusual role in the Beatles story. He was a columnist for the Sunday Times. He wrote a little piece about Paul in 1966, I think. Uh, so around the time they finished Revolver, and yeah, he was he was interested. I mean, they it's a really big band, and uh, he thought maybe I could write a book about these guys. And he went to he went to John and Paul, he went to Brian Epstein and he, they gave him permission 
And he became a fly on the wall for about the next year, including the time they made Sgt. Pepper's. And he would go watch John and Paul work. He spent uh, many nights in the studio. And he wrote, there's this quality of uh, British journalism that I love where they're just, they really just say what it's like. Mm -hmm. They're not, uh, it's not overdetermined. And there's lots of details, this kind of free-flowing quality. I wrote for The Economist briefly, and that, and that style was really encouraged there. And it's amazing as an historical document because it's like, um, it's a primary source. I mean, he, he is watching this thing happen. Right. And there's one scene in particular um, where he uh, watched John and Paul with one of their, through one of their writing sessions. They would often get together in the afternoon and work through the time where they go to the studio and then they would go to the studio around seven and be there all night uh, a lot of times and he watched them finish up um with with a little help from my friends and it just um it's electrifying because in all the things that you see and all the details he has and all the things that are unsaid you really feel what it's like to be in the room with the two of them and i i had this feeling of uh, intimacy with them and I, I just, I, I just got hooked. And the other thing, cool thing about the Beatles, um, just as a matter of process, is that um, there is an enormous body of primary evidence on them. Virtually yeah. everyone who was ever around them wrote a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> Everything they ever said is available. Oftentimes, the original audio is available, or transcripts, or you know, st- stuff on YouTube uh, and video. And so you can you can um, you can get get in pretty deep and pretty close. Um, and um, it's also amazing because we have this huge body of of, of material on the Beatles, this huge body of, of biography on John, a huge body of biography on Paul. But the relationship itself, this third thing between them, Lennon McCartney, that slash has had really never been deeply dived into amazing as it as it sounds um and when i started to write about them and i heard from beetle geeks like you're onto something like this is really important this really rings true mm. so beetle geeks <laughs> yeah there's a big culture of uh oh yeah there's gotta be right like oh yeah millions, uh, yeah yeah people who you know read all the books i've read and more um and are just you know fixated and so were you kind of testing the water with them as you're going? Like, like is this legit? Or Yeah, I published something in 2010 that was part of my book proposal and got a really nice response, and it was, it was very encouraging. Um, and uh, it, one of the things that's interesting about, about John and Paul is that when they broke up, when they stopped working together, uh, that's actually when the history of the two of them began, and they started talking a lot about, you know, who did what and... Um, Lennon gave this famous interview uh, to Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone and Paul had did this long thing for life and then had a later worked with Barry Miles who was a who did the authorized biography of him and they would go through every song or many of the songs and they would they would say I did that um, you know he did that and they would they would even like make it a matter of percentage mm-hmm. and um, John was especially aggressive and 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 putting forward the story that though Paul and he had worked very closely together in the early days, that towards the end they were just doing everything alone. And that really took hold, and that really persists to this day. People have this uh, dramatic misunderstanding that Lennon-McCartney was a fiction towards the end of their partnership. Mm. 
and it's just not true at all. Um, the 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 there's a a very interesting truth around what those guys were trying to do to recover their sense of individual identity, um, and we could talk about that some more if you like, because that's the tension between you know the individual ego and the surrender into the we is fundamental to this whole story. But just to go back to the basic facts. Um, they spent a much more time together in the late 60s than most people recognize, number one. Number two, even when they were alone, they were so up in each other's heads. Mm. And that's where the, the critical stuff happens. Of course, being in a room together with someone matters. But if you think about, you know, you might have a relationship with a rival uh, or a partner or someone who goads you or, or inspires you, uh, and you might not see him for months. In the case of John and Paul, you know, they would often initiate stuff separately and then they would come together and finish it off and they would go back and there are cases where, you know, for instance, John wrote Strawberry Fields Forever. They worked on it for weeks. They finished a a good cut. Seven days later, Paul came in with um, Penny Lane, which is like a total mirror image, although like a funhouse mirror because it's also so dramatically different of Strawberry Fields Forever. You flash forward um, about a year, year and a half, um, John did Revolution. They worked on it for weeks. They had a working cut. Seven days later, you can see from the logs, Paul brought in Blackbird, mm. and they're, it, which is also it's sort of responding to the political, you know, uh, kind of cultural currents of the day in this very different way and answering John's song, trying to top him, trying to do his, his version of what John had done. Um, and that quality of being in each other's minds um, as a kind of inspirational and kind of irritational mm-hmm. presence, it doesn't go away even if you stop seeing the guy. So that one of the kind of bedeviling things for me in the book is where do these relationships end? Right. And what I came up with after, I mean, this was a real bear. I mean, it was it was months and months and months of like, I can't fix it. I can't find it. I don't know how to tell the story. And then I realized that is the story. They never end. It's mm-hmm. not something that's like, it, it's frustrating for us as storytellers. We want to say like, this is it. You know, where do, you know, I, I know where to end the book. I'm going to end the book when John, when, you know, Paul gave his famous interview that was interpreted as the Beatles splitting right. up. Um, but that's, that was just another move in this, in this chess game. And it goes on, went on through the 70s, and it goes on now because Paul is still in relationship to John Lennon and to the ghost of John Lennon and to his memories of John Lennon, um, you know, all the way through and will be until he dies. Man, I mean, which is <laughs> so fascinating. Like, what does it take to actually get to a point where somebody is that in your head that they persist there in perpetuity? <laughs> it, the, the pairs that, I'm, I, I, that, I, that are in this book, it's... Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, to get to a place where you, uh, you know, are where it's uh, you know appropriate to, to to study a pair, you know, at this level, there is some kind of the metaphor I use is confluence. And when two rivers, when the Ohio River flows into the Mississippi, those waters are blended, and now it's one river. And to some degree, that always happens in these partnerships. It doesn't. It doesn't happen in that moment of like creative love at first sight that chemistry moment it often takes months or years um but it it does eventually happen and and it's not once it happens it's it's not reversible and that's 
kind of exciting if you are you know love the romance of of union but it's also tremendously threatening if you if you're you know uh if you're and, and all of us are this in, this way in some way we 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 want to hang on to a sense of our individual self separate and especially in this culture which is just fixated on the individual and there's a whole legal infrastructure that's like it's all about individuals which is relatively new historically i mean hundreds of years ago this thing we called the individual hardly existed either as a cultural construct or as a legal financial construct um you were you know embedded in these in these communities but now it's like there's contracts and there's names and there's credit nah. and there's a lot of pressure um uh to you know get what's mine and success itself is one of the most challenging things for for successful pairs that's one of the things that 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 really gets in the way because it brings all this stuff to the fore you know a band in a in a garage it's like yeah man you're doing this and I'm doing this and right. I don't know if your drum roll kind of came first or my guitar like came first but we've got this great song next thing you know you have a big hit and you're in the conference room you know at some record label and it's like percentages are being affixed and that drummer is like being cut out entirely when that guitarist you know who you know after that jam wrote down the lyrics has 100% and that shit adds up i mean Pete right. Townsend is dramatically more wealthy than Roger Daltrey Daltrey gets paid when they go on tour Townsend gets paid anytime uh, a who song gets played on the radio uh and that's uh you know that's an intense thing. Yeah, so it's not just ego; it's power, it's prestige, it's money in the bank. It's, oh yeah, there's a lot to. I mean, there's a lot to fight for to say no. That was from me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I had a, a little but, moment last night. That's I, I, you want to you want to go on? Then I got okay. well. It was just really interesting to me because I, I I am. This is an ongoing experience for me, and I I. I I think this is worth reporting. I'm reporting it in near real time because it just happened last night. I did my first book event. Uh, Eamon was there. We were celebrating our exchange. Mm. I always call Eamon the co-creator of the book, and I really believe it. Um, and it was it was very powerful for me to have him by my side. Then afterwards, I went to the table to begin signing. There was a, a flattering line, and I was you know doing my thing, and then. Five or six people in, someone came in and they said they want Eamon to sign it too. And I thought, what is he going to do? And he and he picked up a pen and he grabbed the book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it threatened me. It yeah. did. Uh, it was like just this little thing of like, wait a second, wait a second. That's my name on the cover of this book. And I want to tell on myself because I think that that's part of it. You know, uh, and so watching that and keeping that in proportion. Now, I, I'm in partnership with a guy who, for the most part, likes to be behind the scenes. Eamon didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, you know, I want to get involved in Josh's, you know, uh, you know, podcast, you know, that's scheduled for one o'clock today. Um, you know, he's on to other things. He has many books. This is this is my whole life. Um, but that tension of ego versus you know you know the i versus the we uh you know that's 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 uh that's it's always there so fascinating right because it's like you're the guy who just wrote about this 
and then and and so it should be you're like hyper aware of the phenomenon like you yeah. you get it from every possible angle because you've lived it and breathed it and studied it and researched it and then you sit there but and and this bubbles up inside you like it's just baked into the fiber of of who we are is yeah. I mean but you also which is interesting because you also said that this is a relatively new phenomenon though so I mean like you know generations ago if it was much more about you know the plural and the singular what changed? I mean, is it is it really wired into us, or is it just wired into the culture, and, and the culture has changed? When I say it's relatively new, I mean it's hundreds of years now. Okay. So it's 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 uh it's very very deeply bound up in who we are. To some extent, this art this, this sort of tension between the collective and the individual, you know, it sort of swings back and forth, and we may actually be swinging right now. A little bit more towards the collective than is appropriate. And Susan Cain wrote a book called Quiet. Sure. It's been a New York Times bestseller for years now, I think. And you know, she on her website invites people to join the Quiet Revolution. People are really uh, being affected by this. And she says, you know, if you have a tech company and you eliminate all private workspaces, right. you know, you got a lot of introverts. On your on on your payrolls, and a lot of them are going to be your your best people. A lot of engineers are are introverts, and that is not the way they work best. And it's like um, these companies have uh, you know have heard, oh well, collaboration is good. It's like hearing, oh well, you know, a plant needs water, so let's throw it in a lake. Hmm. It a, a plant needs some water, and it, and it but not too much. It needs some sunlight, but not too much. It needs to be in the right environment, and there is a right balance between connection immersion in, in, a, in a social context and privacy and a sense of individual identity yeah. and and all great uh creative pairs and romantic pairs and 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 friends they give each other the right amount of space and they have the right amount of of time together and they negotiate that over time yeah and it's so fast I mean, it's interesting you brought up susan also and that book which really you know, gave voice to a third of the population who largely assumed that there was something wrong with them and they had to change to succeed by modern standards. Yeah. And um, But it's interesting how, you know, especially in, in the creative, the hyper-innovative world, which most people would probably say these days is led by the tech industry, that the, the guiding ethic is open offices, like everybody is all sort of running around in the same room. Um, but at the same time, the legendary stories of the starters usually starts in a house somewhere you know, with a couple of guys with hoodies and headphones, you know, and dark lights just coding yeah. 24-7, either individually or what's interesting is that increasingly I've, I've, I've been talking to people who, um, you know, they code in pairs. And there are some companies that literally, they'll take on huge development projects and all of the coders code in pairs yeah. because they find that the quality of the output and the speed of the output is just so much better. Yeah. Well, the, there's something very special about the dyad. It's a very unusual social unit um if you look at what happens when a third person comes into a room with two people i mean room metaphorically or, or literally but you know two people are doing something together and it's this very fluid flexible thing it's social and we're social creatures so we we that our reality is always social and it's there between them but they can switch roles one can mm. be the the initiator and the other person could be the critic one person could be dominant one moment, the other person could be dominant the next moment, and they can do this dance. I mean, it, and you can imagine dancers are moving across a floor, um, dipping and, and 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 bobbing and weaving, 
Um, the moment a third person comes in, those roles um, begin to harden somewhat. And it, it's like adding a third leg underneath a table. It creates some solidity and some structure, which can be, which can be valuable, but it makes the thing uh, more rigid. Um, so the, the dyad is a very unusual, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm paying such special attention to it. And it's also a place where this dance between the individual and the collective really, you know, it's like, dude, I need to take a breather. You know, I'm not like, if there's a group here, I'm like, that's like a thing, you know, I've got a, you know, it's like, am I going to interrupt the group? Cause I, and like, just go off probably not. But if it's just you and me, it's like, okay, well that's, you know, we're attending to each other's needs individually and collectively. And uh, my, my favorite metaphor for so many things in life is like, is the guitar string that's out of tune. I was, did an interview this morning and someone said, well, what happens when a partnership is kind of breaking down? How do you deal with it? Well, you have to know the particulars because it's like, you would never say, you never call someone up on the phone and say, my guitar is out of tune. You know, my E string is out of tune. How do I get it in tune? They would say, well, is it sharp or is it flat? You know, and is the, is the guitar properly adjusted? I mean, is that the problem? Are your strings bad? Like, are they, are they so loose from overplay that right, you need yeah. new strings? Um, but even that, take it back to that basic question, is it sharp or is it flat? You got to listen to it. Some people are not spending nearly enough time with other people. They're really, really undercooked. Some people do need more space uh, and they do need more solitude. And the same person might need different things at different, different times. times yeah. I mean, there are moments when it's like, I got to call Eamon. I'm not going to fix this problem without him. I got to send this to my, you know, my friend Jillian or my friend Matthew um, and, and get their response. I, I got to talk this out. You know, I would, I had someone I, I paid and one of her jobs was just to take notes as I rambled mm-hmm. for hours. Um, and other times it's like, I literally checked myself into a hotel room, you know, for 10 days to finish the final draft. And I had no plans. It was like, this is it, man. This is down to me. You know, I've got to do this. I was on the phone at various times, but I wasn't like, you know, having major conferences or whatever i needed to generate an enormous amount of material it was me and the keyboard shift gears a little bit it's not really shifting gears but just you know something that, that you've written about and that uh, you've talked a little bit about but i want to talk a little bit more about is the idea of um the dyad ne- is not necessarily like the designated dyad like these are these are partners like here are two people who are clearly front and center in partnership you know that it, in fact there are some from the outside world there may be people that the world considers absolute enemies or rivals yeah of and not rivals within like, you know, kind of rival, kind of collaborator, like, you know, John and Paul within the same unit working together to co-create one you know, yeah. collective output, but people doing their own thing in their own world, but clearly, you know, like they're trying to one-up each other the whole time. Yeah, definitely. But you're saying that that actually counts as a unit. Yeah, so the the progression I, 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 uh, I move through in my own mind is first look at people who are just trying to beat the crap out of each other. Look at um, you know Magic Johnson and Larry Bird 
it's very clear. You know, one one of them is going to win, and the other's going to lose. Period. And they're fiercely competitive, and they not only, especially Larry Bird, not only wanted to win, he, he enjoyed his opponent's suffering. Um, and they came in NBA at the same time, and they they drove each other and they goaded each other, and they're just absolutely rivals. Stephen. Douglas and Abraham Lincoln had a similar. We should just throw out for those who are not basketball yeah. fans. They're also separate teams. They're not. Yes, like that's right. On the same that's team. right. Yeah. yeah. So Larry Bird with the Celtics, Magic Johnson with 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 the Lakers, um, and they're both the leaders of the teams. They're both MVPs. They're both taking their championships, and it's this rivalry that that goes all the way through. It's also that's a big story in hip hop. You know, it's like these guys battling each other. And at a certain point, you have to say this is actually an adversarial collaboration because they're being defined and made and made much better mm. by the presence of the other. And then you can um, look at uh, a, a case where you know it's that's happening and it has a quality of kind of you know hip hop is like it's often it's sometimes literally violent. Then you can look at a case where it settles over time into a real affection and and even. Uh, a deep respect and even a kind of desire for the other, like with Picasso and Matisse, trying to outdo each other, trying to be better than the other, uh, picking up on what the other has done and imitating it and 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 absorbing it. And over time, they were very clear that you know, Picasso said in essence, Matisse is the only one who matters to me, and mm-hmm. Matisse said virtually the same thing. And then that same quality you can look at happening inside known partners like John and Paul. It's a very similar dynamic within Lennon slash McCartney that they had a sense of shared purpose and a sense of trying to top the other. Hmm. So you wonder what happens when... Um, did you look at this at all? When you had that nature of um, relationship and then one of them either stopped doing the work died um like what happened to the surviving one who was maybe was still around and still involved in producing creative work for a period of time yeah well you know it's it's just um it's devastating i mean when someone you're involved with that intimately goes away to an extent that we're we're really not aware of and we probably shouldn't be because it it you know there there's some things in life that you just you need to count on like you don't want to be thinking about the uh, the many layers of you know of concrete beams and, and and wood floors holding us up on the you know way above the upper west side of Manhattan right now like you want to just count on that floor all you got to do is walk you don't even want to think about walking you want to think about you know you know wh- where you're where you're headed but we don't think about the way that other people make us who we are we just we kind of just do it mm-hmm. um, the same way that a, you know a child shouldn't have to think about when's bedtime. You know, someone else is setting that rule for them. They may cry and scream, but someone else is going to set that set that. And um, when that other person goes away, it's um, it can be. Um, I mean, it just it 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 can be devastating. In the case of Vincent Van Gogh and Theo Van Gogh, it was literally deadly. Theo had always been the sane one, the clear-headed one. He had it together. He earned the money. He went to an office. He he put up with the daily indignities of life. And Vincent was, you know, for both of them, the the mad one and the irascible one. And nothing's good enough. And 
uh, I'm going to make beauty, you know, damn, you know, damn the re- the exigencies of everyday life. When Vincent died, almost immediately, Theo um, unraveled, and he he took on these qualities, this frenetic manic quality, and he started doing these very unreasonable things. And within months, he was in an asylum. Mm. And within months after that, he also was dead. The circumstances are mysterious. And uh, so it was, you know, literally deadly. Another really haunting story for me is Ralph Abernathy and Martin Luther King. Uh, King assassinated, uh, we all know. And Ralph Abernathy, who, you know, for 13 years, they had just done everything together. They shared hotel rooms together. But no one really knew that. No one really knew what happened in there except for the two of them. And now you have this guy who was already the onstage partner, already much better known, and now he's become the saint, the smarter. And and so anything that Ralph Abernathy could claim in relationship to him is kind of suspect. Nah. And anything he did to try to narrate their story, it just didn't look good. It didn't look right. And he he and and he was not a particularly politic guy in that way, and he, and he and he made some mistakes. The critical thing was that he. He wrote a memoir and he he talked to him about his uh, about King's infidelities, and people just people in the 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 movement went at him at, and 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 brutalized him, and he was just a totally broken man. Um, and um, I, I think that you know, I think that the you look at Paul McCartney, uh, you know, over the last ten or twenty years and the way that he's constantly moving from partner to partner and different producers and different collaborators and constantly returning to this thing that he had when he was, you know, in his teens and twenties. And he just made a video for his most recent single, which is like this kind of retelling of the time he met John. Mm. It's like, it's, uh, it's such a strong presence in his imagination. And yet this guy's not there, you know, you can't, and it's, it's one, reason why to the extent that we're able when there's a big relationship we should try to keep engaging with it you know while while we can while we can talk to the other person while we can deal with the other person because you know the moment they become inaccessible to us they don't go away it just it kind of it becomes ethereal it becomes almost ghostly yeah which is interesting also in the context of um of apple right now because you know you've got well, I guess there were a couple of sets of dyads in there. You know there was, yeah. was Stephen was, but there was also Stephen Johnny Ive. Yeah, definitely. You know, and now Johnny is the surviving guy who's in the company, and now everybody's kind of looking at saying, "Okay, is is this even possible now? Yeah, you know, like is is Steve enough in Johnny's head? And and you know, will the new guy that can? You know, it's it's so interesting because I think a lot of people are just sitting and waiting and watching now to see. Yeah, no, I'm super curious about that too. And Apple is famously secretive. You know, fortunately, uh, Jobs let Walter Isaacson in, and yeah. and he he you know, wrote this magnificent book. So we have a lot of great primary material on the last days of Steve Jobs, but we don't know much about what's happening there now. And I, I would be really curious to learn about it. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you wonder if Johnny ever kicks back in his chair in his office, and, you know, and just said, you know. What would Steve do? Well, you know that that is that is something that happens, and um, you know one of the pairs that I interviewed, um, Daniel, Daniel Gilbert, Gilbert yeah, yeah, very eminent uh, psych, you know, research psychologist at Harvard, and he has a partner in Timothy Wilson, who uh, 
has a separate posting. He's at the University of Virginia. They both have published separately, but they all of their basic research was together and they, they still regard themselves as collaborators and they, they take turns and allocate credit in ways that work for both of them. But they really they spend much less time together than they used to because they can anticipate each other. They have each other in each other's heads. Um, and that is, uh, um, you know, that that's actually highly adaptive. I was talking about having the other person in your head as this, you know, really challenging phenomenon, but it's, it's, it's quite positive. A lot of times, like, you know, we're talking about the internal critic and, and anticipating, you know, uh, challenges and playing Notre Dame, like that's something a good editor does for a writer is you, right. you, you start thinking, well, how's he going to react to that? He, you know what? He's going to say, this is an anecdote mm-hmm. yeah. that doesn't really have a point. There's no theme here. All right. Well, you know, I guess I better deal with that before I show it to him. Right. Although there's a risk in that too, which is that you start just having both sides of the conversation in your head all the time. Yeah, that's right. And that you're wrong. Yeah. yeah and then you don't benefit from the genuine you know, contribution of that other person too. And I know a lot of people in that place. Yeah. Like what's an example? You know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, um, who will, you know, they're in partnership, but maybe they, they feel less secure about the partnership. So before they actually show anything to the other person who they really, they're concerned about being judged by, yeah, they'll dance back and forth with, you know, like a million different arguments. Well, they're going to say this, they're going to say this and try and which, you know, so to a certain extent, Mm. um, it's good because you're trying to make your idea better by doing it. But to a certain extent also, they may not say that. Yep. And they may some, say something which is actually going to unlock something that would have stopped you in your internal process far earlier and led you both down a much better, yeah. more interesting path. Yeah, definitely. That's um, and one of the things you see in great pairs is that there is a, um, uh, a sense of safety in uh, you know, coming to the other mm. regardless of what the outcome will be um a sense of vulnerability um that's that's hard to sustain um and people you know treat each other in a a way that's that that you know uh that works i mean i and it's a it's a very hard balance it's another thing that i you know i struggle with in this book there were times when Eamon was hard on me in ways that felt counterproductive and that's my side of this kind of crisis I had towards the end of the book and um, maybe I'll see it differently over time um, but uh, I, I I felt you know extremely fragile and like I needed a lot more encouragement than I got um, and um, but at the same time I, I always knew I never doubted that you know he and I were in this for basically the same yeah. reasons that we I wanted to we, so important. we cared about the yeah. question and we wanted to reach people and make people's lives better um, by, de- you know, delivering um, a kind of uh, engagement with the question in an in a, in a informed way. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's I think having that baseline assumption that we're, we're both working towards the same end. Our processes may be different. We may have frayed edges. We're emotionally, you know, like in <laughs> different places, but we want the same thing to come out of this. Yeah. Um, I think that I think very often I've seen being the, the saving grace that stops things from absolutely blowing up and keeps people in the process long enough to get through these really grueling, tense interactions yes. and times 
where that are necessary long enough to like get through it and then yes. it's like bam that's the place and i think there's a lot of those if you talk about people in crisis that's that's one very strong move to go back to the you know to the to the um oasis of your shared vision your shared assumptions your mutual regard your mutual respect uh, sometimes there's conflict that actually needs to be engaged directly and you need to clarify the, the differences and disagreements and maybe you you do those two things simultaneously but yeah if you lose that sense of shared ground uh it's um it's uh, th- that's where things start that the, uh and and very often people say well how do i find a partner like this um you know most of the pairs that i talk about in the book if you look at how they first meet there's some kind of similarity or rapport shared interest that, that that's that's the first thing you know they're they're both in a faculty meeting together because they're they're both scholars of english like lewis and tolkien they're both you know working on electronics and you know doing pranks like jobs and wozniak and a mutual friend was like you guys should meet each other Mm. Um, but then on top of that once you have that shared interest you want to find the person who challenges you the most so at any point in the partnership you may need to, to lean in one direction or another you may need to lean towards the commonality or lean towards the challenge and you know this brings to mind something that paul Paul McCartney tells the same stories over and over again. And you're like, wow, that's, that's a big deal for him, clearly. Mm. And one of the things he tells is that he and John were having some big fight. And John, who uh, wore glasses, we all know, lifted up his glasses. Or I think maybe he kind of dipped down his glasses and like looked at him in the eye, like over his glasses. And he said, it's only me. <laughs> and then he like, you know, put, picked his head back up and, and kept going. And I think... For Paul, it was like, um, um, it's that moment of like, you know, we're, st- we're still pals, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've had all these years together and, and, and there was much more of that even in the times of like ferocious enmity, like that was their default, like, you know, pay attention to all the shit that happened in the late sixties, early seventies, but like it was 72 or 73 or something, John was on TV and and uh, someone the interviewer asked him about Paul, and he said, "Well, you can't have a fight with your best friend. Who who can you fight with?" Mm. Uh, and you know, a couple of years later, he was talking openly about how much he loved him. You know, he's yeah. like a brother. Um, that's the the affection ran so deep. Yeah, I mean, it's really powerful. So, um, so and of course, brothers are the ones who drive you the most crazy too. So right, it, you've got both their, energies there, yeah. and that's I, I guess to a certain extent, you have to have that. Um, Definitely for the. For the the best possible creative output. Yeah, well, the guy who doesn't challenge you, I mean, it's just, it, it, it just becomes maddening. Well, you might as well be working alone <laughs> at that point. Uh, or or it's better because because you can challenge yourself in your own mind, right. you know, as opposed to, you know, no one, there, there's nothing more maddening than a toady, you know, because you have this, like, conversation happening that's totally not not advancing, it's not creative, it'll totally fix you. And if you could at least get into a room alone you could initiate this internal conversation which we haven't gotten into but that's a that's a huge part of the story is the way that the conversation like you and I are having a conversation but it's got a vibe it's got a quality it's mutual respect and you clearly have many more stories than we've even scratched the surface on and that's this feeling of mutual interest and kind of curiosity and you know um, and comfort 
I'm going to walk out and I'm going to have that quality in my mind a little bit. And if we were to spend hundreds of hours in these kinds of conversations, it would get deeper and deeper and deeper. And if, you know, the kinds of, of people spend, you know, years in, in relationship with someone else, it becomes a quality of mind. Mm-hmm. And that quality of mind, that quality of conducive exchange, that is what creative thinking is. And if you listen to people describe the creative process in their minds, they always will talk about the sense of kind of there's a initiator and a receiver in the mind. Mm. And that's what the muse, the myth of the muse was trying to represent that. And Elizabeth Gilbert gave this great TED talk and she said, you know, I'm not saying we should literally believe that there are fairies like rubbing, you know, their juices over our, our, our creative projects. But the myth of the muse is a really great metaphor for how this happens. And it really takes the burden off the, you know, the kind of the, the, the idea of the tortured individual, that there's some kind of give and take in the mind. And um, that's something that is really to be kind of cultivated. We should cultivate our relationships and getting the balance right. But we should also really cultivate this quality of curiosity. I mean, it resonates with what I've learned in mindfulness, you know, uh, in the mindfulness world, um, that it's there's all kinds of shit going on, and you're you're watching it, and you're relating to it, you know, with some gentleness and some curiosity and some investigation, and uh, and 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 having that kind of respectful, engaged conversation. Well, there's a quality of being awake yeah. and like really seeing somebody, and not just seeing your mental image of them. Like, you know, I need I I came in here and I told you, you know doing interviews this morning and yesterday I'm going to another one after this. And so I need to open my eyes though and see, you know, you are not some interviewer, you are, you know, this dude and, um, and, and, and be awake to it. And, and, um, um, I mean, I'm also, obviously I'm telling you stories I've, 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 I've been working on for many years too. So I'm drawing on experience, but I need to, come into this moment and I makes me think of um, this thing that's been ringing in my head for weeks. I heard it from a teacher named Matthew Brentsilver, a teacher I love in California. And he was quoting a teaching of the Buddha that, uh, you know, if you, the four ways to react to suffering, one is to blame yourself. The other, the second is to blame others. The third is to despair and the fourth is to investigate. Mm-hmm. And he said, the correct answer is D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting because I'm, I'm fascinated by that question, like uh, the question of curiosity. Having done probably around 120 of these conversations now over the last almost three years, um, fairly early on, because I started um, keying in myself. I'm like, what's making for really interesting lives? Mm. You know, is there, what are the pattern recognitions, huh. you know, engines that? A great can, question. One of the big things um, that just came up over and over and over was this deep sense of curiosity. Yeah. You know, on, and very often it would manifest in one of two ways, some, sometimes both. One in a particular, like there's one question or there's one field of study or just life. So we were, hmm. one of our early conversations, we were, um, it was with Dan Ariely actually. And after we wrapped, there was a guy on the crew who has ink all over his body. And Dan was in a rush. He was going to three countries after this, you know, he's going to a whole bunch of shows. And, He's just looking at the guy, and he's like, "What's that?" He's pointing to his arm, 
and he wants to know the story behind the tattoo. Yeah. And he's like literally having the guy like roll up his sleeves and he wants him to trace them. He's like, you know, like picking up his shirt because he wants to know the whole story. Not because it's shtick. He really is curious. Like what makes somebody, what's the story and what makes somebody cover his body with ink to tell this story? Yep. And, and I've seen that now across so many people. And my deeper curiosity is actually, is, is that teachable? Like, do you have it or not? Um, yeah, that's a great question I don't question have an answer too. to it. I've started to explore it a little bit more. Well, mindfulness is definitely one, you know, it's one practice that, that leads in that direction. Yeah, no doubt. And, um, you know, the, and that, and, and there's also, I should say, you know, there is the problem of being overly curious. People who have, you know, too much kind of um, investigatory quality and have a hard time organizing it. And right. that's a lot of what, you know, um, mania is and other kinds of mental illness even is that there's all these inputs are flooding in and you don't have boxes to put them in. Right. And a lot of what happens, I think, in a, in a effective creative mind is the relationship between curiosity and, you know, pushing against barriers and kind of moving out of, you know, uh, established forms and then a return to form, mm-hmm. you know, because everything has to have its form. And we often lionize the uh the people who are you know it's like the the apple ad you know here's to the crazy ones mm. and you, you know this romantic image of people who are just they're rebels and they they're turning their backs on you know the establishment that's true but it misses the other side of the dialectic which is lucid sanity a preoccupation with tradition and create creativity only exists in the relationship of those two qualities yeah. And every single character on that in that Apple ad was in that dialectic, often with a with a, a second person who provided structure and form, you know, so that they could be the wild one. Um, and that can happen in our mind. And I'm sure that Dan Ariely, I really imagine he was not just taking that in as a series of images, but you know, uh, having associations and making connections and kind of mm-hmm. and, and and integrating that into something either in that moment or later on and it's that dance that we you know we have, we have to do for ourselves to some extent and but we often really need help from other people uh to do it yeah and i totally agree solitude matters but the, the magic is in the in-between yeah definitely yeah. so i want to i want to come full circle and actually uh give a wrap up here sure actually yeah um so the name of this is good life project and uh and i'd love to explore with each person um, as we wrap up if I offer that term out to you to live a good life um, does it mean anything to you if so what yeah definitely I probably the piece of writing I'm um, best known for is a, a, a piece I wrote about this uh, Harvard happiness study they've got all these um, they had this idea that they could study uh, uh, well-being um, and that that would be a contribution to, to medicine you know, in contrast to all the study of um, of uh, debility and, and disease, and that was the thing that preoccupied me. You know, what, what is a good life, and you know, can we can we learn it? Um, and I do think I have a internal locus of it, but it's there are also a lot of questions. I mean, the the idea of you know, articulated by Freud, but shows up in lots of traditions of work and love. Um, you know, connections with others, you know, friends, you know, romance, family, community, and some kind of meaningful work and some kind of like purpose that's other directed, you know, uh, 
satisfying to oneself, but also useful to other people. The thing that I wrestle with the most, though, is, um, you know, that creativity um, does, I, I don't want to, I don't subscribe to the myth of, to the romance of the, of the uh, suffering creator. I certainly don't think suffering is necessary uh, in a, in, in a, you know, an extended way. Many of the, of the best writers and best creators I know have a lot of joy in their lives and are really good, sane people. Uh, at the same time, um, I think that a lot of the things that we care about the most did emerge from a lot of pain. And that is really challenging. I mean, and I go to the MoMA and I see a Jackson Pollock and I feel like my life is worth living because I've been able to spend 10 minutes in front of this or a Van Gogh um, or I read, you know, um, uh, a Kafka story. And I feel like he's just articulated what it feels like to be alive. Mm. And I don't know what to do with that in my own life because I don't want to um, give myself uh, permission to to kind of uh, dwell in my misery. But I also, I would want to be realistic. And I would not describe myself as a happy person. And I want to be happier. And I think I could, I could be even more effective creatively if I was. But I don't know how high the bar ought to be. Mm. <laughs> because I don't think in the end that's a, that is the index. Uh, I, 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 and I, I'm, I'm really, I really wrestle with that. I mean, that's, it's funny cause that is the question of my, of this book I spent seven years on many years ago and it's ongoing. And this good life question that I worked on for years for that magazine piece is obviously ongoing. And this question of, you know, creative chemistry is ongoing. All these questions are ongoing yeah. and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have to live with that with all the all the passion and gentleness I can muster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's like, it, op it opens up something that it's very often it, you know, you become a seeker and the end may be the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I try to bring it to bear as much I can in a loving way to other people. I mean, um, and I, I, you know, I, I get a lot of advice and support and I, I also, you know, I try to, I'm very, I very much believe in the teacher-student dialectic, and I am a student a lot of the time, and I, I try to be a teacher, you know, whenever the opportunity arises. And um, I believe in the creative path and making beautiful things um, that, you know, impart some kind of meaning. Um, and that, that is the, that's the highest end for me. And there, there's a convergence between, you know, psychology and sort of, you know, these paths and pursuits of, of, you know, of, of towards happiness and well-being and the creative arts that, you know, when those two things come together, um, you know, that's, that's where I feel at home. Um, I'm, I'm most, you know, one of the happiest places for me to be is a writer's conference where it's just the air is filled with language of search and pain and <laughs> melancholy and, but the language itself is quite beautiful, and there's just this really uh, very full, uh, you know, quality that life is being lived in a in a really raw way. Um, and uh, I, I just I feel like uh, I can rest there. Mm. 
I think that's probably a, a great place to bring our conversation. Cool, man. As well. Thank you so much. Really yeah, it's a, it's it. a great pleasure. Great, great talk. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Good Life Project. If you enjoyed this episode, you know what would be really cool? If you jumped over to iTunes to maybe share a quick review. It helps us get the word out to more people and make a bigger difference in the world. And hey, while you're there, why not subscribe? It's just a quick click and it's totally free and you'll never miss an episode. And if you'd love to know a little bit more about how we can maybe help you live your own best life, check out our upcoming events and courses at goodlifeproject.com.